Uh, well, good evening, evening, brothers and sisters. Um, this week we will continue our introduction to Ezekiel, paying closer attention to its historical set uh, and, uh, and literary dynamics. Uh, yesterday, yesterday uh, Seth was poking fun at me how I possibly scared off visitors because it's like it's a little bit more fire and brimstone. Uh, this week will not be the case. It will be a little bit more toned down, but still God's word. Um, and hopefully none of you will go flame for uh, this, this church. Um, with that said, uh, we will be looking at, at Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Uh, and then we'll pray that God's blessing would, would be upon us. So Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, just the first few verses, verses 1 through 3. 3. In the thirtieth year, fourth month, on the day of the month, as I was among, among the exiles by the Shabar Canal, the, the heaven opened, all visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it is the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, in, in the land of Chaldeans, by the Shabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Upon him. Let's pray. Father, for your word, word, even for uh, just the brief introductory mass, Lord, Lord, there's a spring in which we can learn. Uh, just from simply read your text closely, paying attention to its grammar, grammar attention to its historical setting, uh, but also how, how we will be, it will point to Christ as the entire book, as the entire of the book unfolds. Lord, please, please be with us and remember the prayer of our pastors are just now, hide me behind the, behind the cross, that no ill will or misspoken word would come across, but that you be glorified in all, in all I've said and proclaimed here this evening. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. What we just read is the, the superscript to the book of Ezekiel. It provides the context as well as the content that we, that we will follow in the book of, book of Ezekiel. For, for to look at the initial historical set, setting of Ezekiel and its prime authors, uh, that, being, that being Ezekiel and Yahweh. Uh, these will be our first two points. Our aim tonight is simply to familiarize ourselves with key, key information that will be helpful in our study. And I'll make some devotional comments on the way. But uh, as we get towards the end of the, end of the message tonight, I want to see that Ezekiel is a book for the Christian church to study. And to study well. And that will be our third point. So our first point is, is just familiarizing ourselves with, with the historical setting of Ezekiel. The second point, we'll look, we'll look at primary authors. And then thirdly, we'll look at a Christian approach to the book of Ezekiel. So first, the setting. Ezekiel provides us a very good setting. Uh, a lot of information, that is. As we, as we did last week, the, the immediate audience of Ezekiel was a group of exiles by the Bar Canal. The Chabar Canal was an irrigation system that brought water from Euphrates rivers into Babylon, uh, southern Babylon, Mesopotamia. Look at the globe. Uh, Babylon is due east from, from Jerusalem directly. But you can't get there in a straight shot. shot. It was a rough and desert uh, and mountainous terrain uh, in between Jerusalem and Babylon. So when the, ex- when the exiles left Jerusalem, they went, they went up north and slowly went southeast along the Euphrates River. 
It was faster and safer travel along the river, which was under ba- Babylonian rule. Also, the ba- Babylonians were perceptive when it came to their captive. The, the Babylonians allowed people groups to establish other, other ethnic religious settlements in their kingdoms, such as what we see as the, the exiles uh, ga- gathered at the Bar Canal. So they had these other there's ethnic religious settlements in their kingdom, and this was in order to, to reduce revolting among, among, among peoples. It would have been similar to what, what, we, what we considered an internment camp for our, for our close comparison to them today. Uh, it was still awful circumstances, but it was comparatively better than to the Assyrian conquest, where nearly, nearly uh, they wiped out the entire peoples of northern Israel, or they, or they tried to force them into their own society. Also, uh, just quick clarification, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are simply another name for the, for the Babylonians. Uh, it was just what the ethnic peoples were called who ruled, ruled Babylon. Also first, we also see a, a clear-cut timeline for when Ezekiel's ministry began. In verse 1, the 30th year refers most likely to Ezekiel's age at time of his initial writing. But he, was, he, was also, uh, he, also, he also put the exact date for the year they were in. The fourth month on the, on the fifth month. In verse 2, we see this, this compared with the, the dating exile of, of King Oyachin. On the fifth day, day of the month, the same day that was just, just meant, it was the, the fifth year of the exile, King Jehoiachin. As we will see throughout the book, the book of Ezekiel, there are many dates that reference King Jehoiachin. The day to exile is referenced because many saw Jehoiachin as the most legitimate king of But also, also because Jehoiachin was exiled with the majority of the, the exile to Babylon. Uh, with this reference to Jehoiachin, I believe it would be helpful for just to quickly recall the events of kings, uh, uh, second king in particular, and the events that preceded Jehoiachin. This will be important for uh, what we be build on in Ezekiel. Uh, when I first visited this church, I, I remember Pastor Wynn was going through the, the book of Kings at this point. And I remember that y'all had a Bible quiz on First and Second Kings for the church uh, that came after the sermon or for, for some like special uh, devotional time. I don't know if you remember this, but I, I remember this first time, first time, so I remember it vividly. Um, and I love that, I love that. I love having that Bible study uh, or that, that Bible quiz. It was fun. It's one of the reasons I came back. Uh, but I know for many of you, I won't try to uh, have you remember, remember all the in and outs of uh, the, the, the Judah's final king, kings. Uh, I'm not that cruel. Uh, but the main source for this time period under review is 2 Kings 20, 23-25. These are the uh, kings that we deal with in this period. For most he's here, uh, we're familiar with King Josiah. He's one of the few great kings of Judah. And he was one, one that tried and was, and was really successful in the religious forms of, of later uh, of the, of the late kingdom of Judah. He was, was one that discovered the, the book of the and was committed to establishing true religion in the, in the land. However, his reign was unfortunately cut short. During his reign, the national power of Egypt and, and Babylon were growing in conflict. Both powers wanted added acts to not only a weakened Judah, but the, the entrance to the Mediterranean world, what is modern-day Turkey. Egypt was to, was to engage in battle with Babylon, but they had, had to go through Judah to do that. This is, this is something that King Josiah could not tolerate. He could not have, have Egypt come up through Judah in order to, to battle Babylon. 
So Josiah rides out against Egypt to stop them, but he dies tragically in battle with Egypt in 6 BC. Since Egypt was victorious over Judah, Judah becomes a vast state for Egypt. Egypt sets Jehoiakim, Josiah's oldest son, on the throne as a vice-regent. After its meddling Judah, Egypt, Egypt goes north to fight against Babylon at, at Carchemish. But Babylon wins. As a con- consequence, Babylon takes over Judah and ports the first, first wave of uh, ex- exiles from Judah to Babylon in, in so five BC, four years. But the vice, uh, but vice reason to Jehoiakim eventually refuses to pay tribute to the new ruler, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Babylon responds the way she does. Babylon comes in, sieges Jerusalem, and kills Jehoiakim in 598. For only three months, Jehoiachin, a difference, uh, difference between Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin for three months, the son of Jehoiakim, set up as king. But he was deported along with many other upper-class citizens and nobility as a, as a slave of exiles in 597 B.C., about, uh, just a year later or so, not even. Since Jehoiachin is dethroned and deported, Nebuchadnezzar places Zedekiah, the uncle of Jehoiakim, and the great-uncle of Jehoiachin as a, 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 a puppet, if we could call him that, as a puppet in order to benefit Babylon. It is while Zedekiah is reigning in Jerusalem that Ezekiel begins to prophesy half a continent away in Babylon. Five years into their exile, that Ezekiel begins his prophetic ministry, the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. But as we proceed through the book, we see events that pertain to Zedekiah in Jerusalem. Similar to Jehoiachin, Zedekiah does not wish to pay payment to Babylon. He doesn't earn from his predecessor's mistakes. So he enlists Egypt to aid in a military coup. And so Babel eventually comes come in and finally destroys Jerusalem along with the temple in 586 B.C. At this point, point Judah is completely dissolved and the, the full curse has been placed upon God's people. His glory removed from their presence. And as we go through the book, we will note these historical events. But for now, it's helpful just to see the fuller historical context in which these things take place and where Ezekiel's prophecy actually line up in history. But for now, we should just simply note that Ezekiel is in a foreign land, five years in, where a puppet, Zedekiah, masquerading a figure for their toes benefit. An application that commentators promote in this, uh, these historical investigations, how much the New Testament church uh, and New Testament Christians reflect exiles in captivity. Similar to exiles with constant disappointment from their leaders, or, or our leaders, I should say, say, Christians, those who are sojourners on this earth, we are, the, we are those who don't belong to this world. We are those who are constantly disappointed by our leaders. And we are those who don't have a place to settle, like the, the exiles in, in Babylon. Constantly dis- disappointed with what takes place in our lives. In 1 Peter 1, we see Peter speak of Christians as those who are elect exiles. It is his way, his unique way of showing our status as Christians as those who are the true Israel of God. For those in Christ, our home 
isn't this world. It isn't here. It's not this world. We're still waiting for it. Christians are those called to something more than just the regular status quo of this fallen world. As we saw last week, we are longing and seeking a full consecration of the work of Jesus, the Son of David. And we're looking for that, for that new and new earth, heavenly kingdom to come here. I like personally to conceptualize the Christian as one, as one who has a shift pers- uh, mentality. We know that our, that our lives can utterly change, change the wave of God's soft hand. Like sojourners in a foreign land, we have to be able to, be able to pack up and resettle somewhere else in a moment's notice. What I mean by this is that we are not needless ties to ideologies or theologies, philosophies, or identifiers that bind us to one particular group or one way of thinking that is not expressly biblical. That's what I mean that uh, we are not tied down, down that is. For example, in case uh, uh, being a conservative church and conservatives, uh, well, we are we are conservatives for one, but being among uh, conservative circles, uh, I know many Christians who are bound by family ties that are often detrimental to their their faith. Christians are not anti-family; they don't get me wrong. I'm not not saying that, but but we do realize that our family is not our all in in all. It's so easy to make living for our family the folks of our Christianity rather than the way around. That's a way in which uh, we're different from the world. It's even our conservative brothers or even our conservative counterparts to this world. It's just not that we live for our family. That's not not it at all. But but we live for Christ through our family. Now, great great thing to focus on, on the family mentality but sometimes it's perverted into idolatry. I think another way for us to needlessly bog down, down is political ideologies. For, for me, it's easy to get way down, down with the same five political talking points that I've rehearsed, of course, and to feel comfortable in that whole domain of mine. It's very easy for me. But eventually, my leaders or my party members disappoint me, which typically happens. There may be some biblical principles to my, my political philosophy or political ideology or my, my political camp, but ultimately my party can often be a Christless place. Another way is how we can easily be assuaged into relaxing into the spirit of the age. It's so tempting to seek, to act, to respond, just like the rest of fallen humanity. It's taking more and more effort as the years go by to sustain orthodox Christian principles and values. All the good and wonderful things that has and will continue to characterize society, uh, particularly the American society that we have here in the South, eventually our society may not tolerate us longer. We don't know how long that will hold out. And I've been in the faith. There are so, so many domains of our, of our lives, of my life, that feel, that feel less, less, less comfortable in this world. Media, news, entertainment, that's a big one, government, and even philanthropies feel less and less comfortable as a Christian as they become, become more and more godless in their orientation. And, and even as we ourselves become more and more godly in this fun society, it feels like everything is always 
tentative or the Christian exile. Everything is always a makeshift. It's made for us. We're truly, truly not at home. It's not a place we belong. It would have been very, been very easy for Ezekiel or the exiles to blend themselves into the Babylonian style. That is not what, what faithful exiles do. God graciously gave them rulers that allowed them to live as open followers of Yahweh, even if it was hard in that foreign land. Same is true for us today. Thankfully, we're not persecuted out, outright in our circumstances. As Pastor Wen was missioning earlier, you know, but, but sometimes that discomfort is good for us as Christians. Sometimes that, that comfort and sometimes even out persecution can be good for us, for us as it puts within us faithfulness. Thankfully, we were not pursued outright in a present circumstance. But I argue that we, that we should often feel uncomfortable in this world. It feels that we don't quite fit, right? And there, there is a temptation to come to this world, but that should not be, brothers. The Apostle Peter exhorted us, 1 Peter 1. He's beloved, sorry, 1 Peter 2. Beloved, talking to brothers, urge you as sojourners and exiles who abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles all. So that when they speak against you evildoers, they see your, your good deed and glorify God. So then, brothers, Christians, we are called to be faithful exiles, wandering in a fallen world, waiting for Christ and His kingdom to come into intuition. This world or this society is not our hope or happiness. But as we wait for Christ and for His kingdom, which is our hope, which is our true happiness. Let us be busy glorifying God and gospel. Brother, brothers, during these times, like days, and it, they are tense. We need to be honest, honest about that. We have tense times uh, amongst it's, it's easy and overwhelmed. Similar to Ezekiel and the, and the exiles, remember the faithless kings being destroyed. Remember the unfaithful faithfulness of the church to preach Christ and to obey the word. And we see the effects of our unfaithfulness in the here and now. Brother, let us learn from the mistakes of the past where we be given into the culture, where we be given into Babylon. But let us be faithful in our midst now. Let's learn from those mistakes. Continue to push and obey the word. The word is so much more uncomfortable now. Don't let this current discomfort with your home with your homeland, land, with your city, with your mentality, with, 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 with your comfort in this world. Don't be comfortable in it. In it. And don't let this dis- discomfort discourage you to, con- to continue in your faithfulness to the, to the Lord. Brothers, if you are tired, tired of all the mess around you, and brothers, it has happened for a long, long time, just recently, but I'm pretty tired right, right now. If you are tired, if you're tired of, of this mess, then you are right where you need to be. And, and I'm right to be. At the point, brothers, we need to be uncomfortable. 
but we should use our, our discomfort as wandering exiles, as, as justifying, justifying godly response, responses. We should, we should just know that we are meant to be uncomfortable in this, in this world and that we should, we should glorify God in, in our uncomfortable exile. Brothers, this is not our hope. So don't lay your head down in it. In it. Amen? Amen. So returning back to the superscript and to our second point for this this evening, we are introduced to two primary authors that our study will center around, Ezekiel and Yahweh. We'll take Ezekiel first. The book of Ezekiel is largely biographical. Ezekiel writes of Yahweh's prophetic judgments and promises, but God, God utilizes the, the line of events around Ezekiel as the human author to, to communicate his, his redemptive work. According to verse 3, Ezekiel was a priest, and being at the age of 30, he would have typically begun his temple service at this point, according to Numbers 4, verse 3. But we see nearly, but he was nearly 2,000 miles, miles away from the standing temple. As a priest, rather than begin his priestly ministry, Ezekiel was called by God a prophet. By his vision of phrase, the word came, Ezekiel is signaling to us, the reader, is signaling a change in his ministerial roles and also, also what his. So Ezekiel, as a prophetic and, and priest author, contributes a unique perspective to the canon of Scripture. As we will see once we get into the main context, Ezekiel employs various prophetic genres to communicate the Lord's message. One of them, the main one, oracles, were simply pronouncements of God's covenant breaking, uh, allow, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, of Israel's Israel net breaking, far be it from the other one, Israel's net breaking, followed by punishment, and the main content of Ezekiel. Ezekiel also used many sign acts. Which were simply these theatrical performances to help him convey Yahweh's actions to his audience. Ezekiel uses parables or riddles to go to the audience to think through these tough scenarios, these tough circumstances. Uh, a major prophetic genre that is, that is characteristic of Ezekiel is his visions, these glorious visions. By employing grandiose imagery, God communicated to Ezekiel his own character and also his destructive act history. And his promise of restoration. There are other literary devices and genres typical of the prophetic literature, but note those along the way. Along with these prophetic genres are allusions to his priestly background. We will see mentions to the pre-signings of the Torah, which is the book of the Leviticus, you know, a fan favorite, I'm sure. Delusions provide ample material to think through how Ezekiel understood God's, God's message and unpacking these illusions aid us, us in expounding God's unique message of restoration. Also, since Ezekiel from a priestly lineage, Ezekiel is part of the upper class in Judah. This means that he was well educated, and this is reflective in his writing style. So with this complex and intelligent human author, this priestly and prophetic author, we get a complex and satisfying piece of literature to work through in the book of Ezekiel. And I'm truly excited to be to work through this. And I just hope that you're as excited as I am as we get into the nitty-gritty of the text. With said, though, Ezekiel is not the only author. 
As those who believe in the doctrine of the inspiration of Holy Scripture, we believe God is the primary author of the book of Ezekiel. God not only utilized in his providence Ezekiel's unique personhood, but creativity in the crafting of his prophetic judgments and promises, but we also read of God directly interacting with the prophet Ezekiel. In this superscript, we see phrases like, Heavens were opened. I saw visions of God. In verse 1. And in verse 3, three we see this. The word, word of the Lord came, and the hand of the Lord was up, upon him in Ezekiel. These are direct acts of God to bring his word to his people. As Deuteronomy clearly shows us, prophets were modeled after what was the preeminent prophet, Moses. Deuteronomy 18.8 states, I, meaning God, God, will raise up for them, them Israel, a prophet like you. Moses, among the brothers, and I will put my mouth in their mouth, and they shall speak to them all, that I, all, all that I sent him. So this was, was the tip of affair of God, of God working among his prophets. He presented himself to them, and he put his, his words in, in their mouths. And we'll see later on in our study, Yahweh directly commands Ezekiel to, to write and teach these things to the exiles in the Jar Canal. Now, this divine encounter with the prophet teaches us two, two things, brother. First, prophets were, were those who had some kind, kind of immediate contact with the Lord. This came through audible words or visions. But there was some kind of intelligent communication in place. So we can think of Samuel's initiation as a prophet, right? Where we, we hear Samuel, Samuel. And he responds to Eli, but it's still, still the Lord's scheme. Secondly, the claim to a divine, divine encounter, and this is key, this, this claim to access God's pronouncements in his history was a claim to authority. By Ezekiel writing the words in the superscript for us, and that the, uh, he was communicating this, he is telling his readers that he was, what they were about, about to read are God's authoritative words and that a prophet that had authority to write down these things. But, but like any true prophet of God, Ezekiel's prophecies actually come or are vindicated as true. As, as we will see, Ezekiel's prophecies uh, prophesied of destruction, uh, of destruction of Jerusalem, and he wrote it down on Ezekiel 4, verse 2. God verified Ezekiel's prophetic ministry by sending forth historical signs. Similar to, to Moses, God worked miraculous signs through to vindicate Moses' message. Old Testament prophets were given signs to vindicate their message. There was a, a prophecy of an event, and that prophecy was, was verified. Was verified to sign. In Ezekiel's case, the most preeminent, uh, prominent, prominent prophet and sign was the destruction of Jerusalem. Thus, thus we see him as uh, one to three here in Ezekiel one one to three. There are two authors of the book of Ezekiel, but we must never get confused here, brothers. God's word, word are God's words. God's, God's words are God's words, even when they take, take on the characteristic and style of the human author. So how, how can we apply this point? And it's very simple. God gives us His word. Since God's, God's word is true, then we should, should read it, and, and stand. 
Just as, as the exiles at the Shabar Canal were to believe in Ezekiel's divinely produced and vindicated message of God, we are to do, do the same thing. For example, Peter makes a similar argument in reception of the apostolic message. If you would, please, please turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. In 2 Peter 1, verse 16, we read these words. We did not follow the cleverly devised myth when, you, when, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, vindication. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, they were with them on the holy mountain. They heard the, the sign. They saw the sign, sign as well. And we have, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to, to which we'll do well, well to pinch to as to a lamp shining in a dark, dark place until the dawn, dawn day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Know this first of all, that no prophet scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For, for no prophecy was ever produced by, by the man, but men spoke from God as they were, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I want, I want us to see Peter here is this. When, when they were preaching the word, when Peter was preaching the word to the people about Christ to, to the church or to new disciples, their message was vindicated because they were actual witnesses to the, these things. Also, God used visible, audible signs of transfiguration to indicate to the apostles that Jesus was indeed the messianic God. Matthew 17 and following, one and following. But verses 19 and 21 are foundational. So, so please follow me here. Peter argues two things. First, Peter, his prophetic word in verse 19 is a reference to the word of Christ in verse 16. See in verse 16. Uh, the, what, what, what in summary is the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the apostolic presentation of the gospel can be described as a prophetic word. The term prophetic word here is, here is simply being used in a generic sense. Uh, we could easily insert the term revelation for prophetic word. This pro- prophetic word is simply the, simply the revelation of Christ as the messianic son, son of God who saves, saves people and is bringing in, in his kingdom. Here's what Peter, Peter exhorts believers to do with this apostolic, this vindicator. What does Peter do? He says this in verse 19. To which, talking about this word, to which you will do well to pay attention to. Speaking of this apostolic message, to which we will pay, do well to pay attention to. To summarize, Peter wants his audience, audience receive the message of Christ, but also to diligently study and understand it as they prepare, prepare Christ to come again and consummate his kingdom. Here's what, here's what I'm getting at, just fast loose here. The apostolic exhortation for Christians it is... And this is what, what Peter is for. This is his exhortation to Christians. Is that, that we, people who believe gospel, that would study what we already know. 
Peter his Christian audience who already know the gospel to understand the ins and outs of this gospel revelation. Not really superficial understanding. He wants us elect exiles to understand the apostolic work that is summarized for us in the New Testament so that we prepared in this exilic life of this sojourning life for Christ's second coming. Peter wants us to be equipped with the apostolic message of Jesus so that we can both defend the faith and share the faith while we are sojourning in this world. In a world that is ours, but that will belong to Christ. Pastor Wynn made a wonderful and powerful point today. Preachers do not have or do not want a monopoly on scriptural wisdom or anything like that. It's the exact, exact opposite. Pastor Wynn and Pastor Tiago have set, set aside lives so that we, brothers and sisters, grace Baptists, that we would know, know the knowledge of Jesus inside and out. It is so that we can be prepared in this life so that we, we can persevere through difficult times or trials try to oppose false teachers that may come in and that we would, we would be satisfied with the gospel of Christ and His salvation and not be tempted to go after false gospels and false, false deceivers. And with this said, there's a second point that Peter makes in his appeal in this passage. And the second point is important as we approach the book of Ezekiel. Leads us to our, to our third final point for this evening. The Christian approach to Ezekiel. In this passage, in 1 Peter 1, Peter argues that the apostolic message is authoritative because Old Testament scriptures are authoritative. Peter is dealing with false teachers who are opposing him, using Old, Old Testament scriptures in an unwieldy way. And, and they try to use these, these Old Testament scriptures to diminish the message of Jesus. But Peter's message of Jesus is affirmed what Old Testament said. And so that is why he says this, verse 19, that his message of Jesus was more fully confirmed. Peter's message, Peter's apostolic message, was more fully confirmed by the Old Testament. Peter's apostolic, or we could, we could say, say Peter, Peter's New Testament message, is more fully confirmed, or certain, because as he argues in verse 20, knowing this first law, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they carried, as they were, they were carried on by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's possible false teacher, teachers quoting directly from the Old Testament. You know, something like, thus, thus says Ezekiel, thus says Jeremiah, thus says Isaiah, yada, yada, yada. And that was possibly the mentality of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, of the false teachers in Peter's day. But they were forgetting a very important point, these fosters. God is the primary author of Scripture. And He is therefore the final interpreter of Scripture. To summarize here, Peter is arguing that his revelation of Jesus is just as authoritative as the revelation of Old Testament scriptures. They have the same author, God Himself. Thus, if they had the same author, they must agree in its authority and content. 
Both their overarching connected message, both the Old and New Testament, is authoritative for the Christian church. And overarching message is the word about Christ and in his kingdom. For Peter, Peter, any anti-Christ interpretation of the Old Testament has to be thrown out. You can't disagree with the author when trying to quote him, right? So this anti-Christ interpretation cannot work because of who God is as both author of the Old and New Messages and Scriptures. As Mark 1.15 sum well in my view, it says this at the very, very beginning of the Christian faith in the Gospels. The time is filled. By that we should be this. That is the time prophesied by God through the Old Testament writers. At the Old Testament time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. To put it simply, brothers, brothers, Old Testament is just the plot. It is the, the plot that leads us to the conclusion and climax of Christ. And so this brings us back to the superscript in Ezekiel chapter 1. Just some bibliographical detail, and it tells us all of others. What we are to read in Ezekiel are not some random event that God took some some 20, 2,500 ago. Growing off, growing up, up, I often read the prophets in this anti-Christ way. I barely cracked open the Bible when I was younger. When I did, I always found the prophets so bizarre when I was reading them like this. I didn't understand the timeline of the Bible, nor did I understand the Bible as a plan and a as, as God's being unfolded in history. So when I ran, randomly started reading the prophets, it was like I was reading any other religious text. Something like Bhagavad Gita. Just strange visions and long diatribes of a God angry, angry with the Bible. But that was not, not on God, that was on me. When I finally understood the overall purpose of the scriptures, once, once I understood the timeline of God's redemptive plan history, when I understood that God was the author of, of scripture itself, once I understood this, once I understood that God's purposes are being laid out for us there in the Old Testament, and that we, that we should see it as the building momentum behind the grand story of Scripture itself, the glory and presentation of Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the mediator between God and man. Once I understood that, once I understood that God was behind it, it clicked. The book of Ezekiel, like any other Old Testament, Testament scripture, was about Jesus, at least in some way, one way or another. What I mean by, by this is Jesus is the overarching message about the Old and New Testament. And that's something that, brother, brothers, it's so easy for us just to say that, but then we lose it. We say these things, we believe these things, but when we sit down and think about it, that God over the span of centuries, over a, over a span of millennia, that God gave, gave us the Scriptures. He was the author of both the Old and New Testaments. It's always, always been. It has always been about, about Christ. We lose that. 
Brothers, I truly believe, believe this phrase is helpful. The old phrase, the old is the, is the new concealed, and the new is the old reeled. It's a helpful way to, a helpful aid as we come before Ezekiel. It captures the essence of the unfolding plan and redemptive history. Does it mean that every single line or in the book of Ezekiel is about Christ or New Testament reality? It's, we're not, not kind of hermeneutic. We'll get into that later. But ultimately, what this means, this idea of the Old Testament, even Ezekiel himself, is that he's picking something for us. He's building momentum for us. As we read the stories, he's building momentum for us so that when we come to Christ, we see the, the full satisfaction of God's story. It's good to wait in the waters until the, the blessing comes. And we read through Ezekiel. I want us to be good readers of this text. I want us to, to love this text. Not for necessarily what, what merely this text expresses, but where this text pushes us towards. And that, that is always, and that is always for Christ. So, oh, as we approach text, as we deal with the details of text that can be sometimes difficult, or what we should really say is fun, when we deal with the difficult details of the text, it should be fun for us, brothers. Because as we get to the difficult details, we arise in the presence of God. We wade in the waters. Over the overarching message of Jehiel, in the Old Testament, is God's unfolding plan to present Christ as the hope of a fallen humanity. And he, and he does that through details. And the overarching message of the Old Testament, and, and of Ezekiel in particular, is to present a, a hope people separate by God. And he does that by us, by us taking time to study and to serve and to, to long for that word, just as Peter taught us to do. And ultimately, the overarching, unfolding plan of God in the scriptures is that we, we would hope that faithful exiles in their wandering, that as, we, as we meditate upon these things, as we think upon these, these things, brothers and sisters, that we would have hope. Because though Ezekiel might burden us at times, it ends in hope. It must flee to Christ. So as Christians read us, we need to remember Peter's exhortation. Let us pay attention to learn about Christ. We might be prepared. Let us so as faithful exiles with the gospel firmly rooted in our souls. As we see the gospel the Old Testament concealed, and as we see the gospel completely revealed in the New Testament. And as we do that, we will be prepared. And as we will begin in a few weeks within content of the book, we will dig into details of the text. We will, try, we will try to understand Ezekiel in his own right. But as Christians, we always need to remember where God, God going with Ezekiel. God is slowly lifting the veil of his plan, salvation in Christ, this book. And it is our responsibility to understand that and see how this speaks of Christ and what he is currently do, doing in our midst and that we have sober longing and anticipation to see where the story goes. 
just, just as Christians under Peter's pastorate need to un- understand both the Old and Testament's unified message, we too must come to, to pay careful attention to the de- details. By so doing, brothers, God will spare us from the effects of false teachers. He will grow us in anticipation and love for Christ. And He will prepare us for that hope of a home. Having the gospel fully rooted in our souls, brothers and sisters, we are preparing ourselves for heaven. May He be glorified, our Christ, the content of Scripture itself. May He be glorified as we pay close attention to the message of Christ here in Ezekiel. And may God be with us in our, our wandering. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that makes us uncomfortable in this lost and dying world. As though we know of the new life, Lord, we see death, whether physically, whether spiritually, in this world. And we know it's not, it's not right. We are uncomfortable, Father. Lord, Lord, may we taste and see and look at the down us and that it is good. Lord, Lord always have us be uncomfortable. Have us rather to feast upon the words of Scripture, the words of Christ, and even to have our anticipation pricked through the reading and preparation of going through the book of Ezekiel. Be with us thus far. For Lord, that is the end goal. That as we read and understand the Scriptures together, as we prepare ourselves for heaven, Christ Jesus, and His perfect fulfillment of the promises, that we would be prepared to be before you in, in eternity. Lord, Lord, may glorify this, this, this evening, wherever the gospel is preached. This is your Son, Son's holy, holy, and holy name. Amen. Amen.